This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode. And to try to keep up with the times, this will be another episode related to COVID-19. My name is Mike Freilich, one of the co-hosts of the show, along with my brother, John Freilich. And both of us have training in epidemiology and our general internist. John, how are things in Calgary? Hey, Mike. Things in Calgary are good. Uh, Just trying to stay on top of what's going on right now. Yes, you and I both. And I guess you were saying you just finished a week of team or uh, CTU or MTU, whatever you guys call it out in Calgary. Yeah, we call it MTU. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Week of MTU done. And I guess today is my last day. So why don't we jump? Uh, John, what episode are you going to talk about first? So the article that I'm going to talk about is called Association of Cardiac Injury with Mortality in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. This was published in JAMA Cardiology, March 25th, and it was by Xi et al. Gotcha. And I feel like we don't have to say, why is this an important to discuss? Because unless you're living under a rock, you know all about COVID-19. So John, jump in. What was the study design here? Sure. So, you know, this study was interested in looking at what the incidence and significance of cardiac injury is in patients with COVID-19. And so to do that, they did a retrospective cohort study. This was of consecutive patients admitted with lab-confirmed COVID-19 from January 20th to February 10th, 2020 at Renmin Hospital, which is in Wuhan, China. Uh, They excluded patients without a troponin at baseline. They looked at a number of different data points. They had information on demographics, comorbidity, lab work at the time of admission, imaging findings. They also had information on treatments received during the hospitalization. And then they looked at complications and outcomes. So the real primary outcome in this study was cardiac injury. And they defined that as a troponin above the 99th percentile, regardless of ECG or echo findings. And again, this troponin was measured at admission. They did some descriptive analyses as well as multivariable Cox regression to look at risk factors that might be associated with death during hospitalization. Gotcha. So a good old-fashioned retrospective cohort study. And I guess you indicated the outcome was cardiac injury, but I suppose instead the objective was determining the relationship between cardiac injury and various bad outcomes among patients with COVID-19. Is that viable or, or do you want to push back on that? Uh, no, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Okay. So what what did the patients look like who were included in this study? So initially, there were about a thousand patients in the medical record system. Uh, but after excluding those without confirmed COVID, duplicate or no medical information, and those without cardiac biomarkers, 416 cases were included. Now, amongst those excluded patients, they did have some information on sort of median age of 45 and 56% were female. Uh, But looking at that final study population of 416 patients, of those, 20% had cardiac injury. So that was about 82 patients. Now, for all comers, so everyone of those 416 patients, the median age was 64 50% were female. The presenting symptoms, so 80% had fever at presentation, uh, cough 34%, shortness of breath 28%, and myalgias 5%. With regards to some comorbidities, it's kind of what we've seen before. So about 30% with hypertension, 14% with type 2 diabetes. Uh, Only about 10% of patients had a history of coronary artery disease, 5% with prior cerebrovascular disease, and 4% with congestive heart failure. Uh, There was a similar time from symptom onset to admission for these patients, and it was about 10 days. 
Awesome. Yeah, that, that's good information. And also, you know, the devil's in the details. So uh, that's super helpful to know that they started off with 800 or so COVID positive patients. And this analysis was on about half. So what did they find? So amongst those with cardiac injury, they tended to be older. So median age of 74 compared to 60. Uh, they presented with chest pain more commonly as well. So 13% versus 1%. They were more likely to have some of those comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, as well as COPD and cancer. Now, looking at some lab and imaging differences at admission, those with cardiac injury tended to have a higher CRP, an elevated BNP, as well as acute kidney injury, and they were more likely to have bilateral pneumonia on their imaging, as well as ground glass opacities. Complications were higher, so there were higher rates of ARDS as well as acute renal failure. They did describe sort of the ECG changes, and, and these were variable. So amongst those with cardiac injury, the ECG could have included things like T-wave depression or inversions, ST depressions, or Q-waves. Now, when it comes down to cardiac injury and mortality, what they found was that 51% of those patients with cardiac injury died. This is compared with 5% of patients who died without cardiac injury. They did show that the degree of troponin elevation at the time of admission was associated with a higher rate of mortality. Um, and then they did do this multivariable regression where they controlled for certain covariates. And they found that when you measured either from the time of symptom onset to study endpoint or from the time of admission to study endpoint, there was a strong correlation with mortality. So the hazard ratio was 4.26 with a confidence interval of 1.9 to 9.5. And then the other piece was that ARDS was identified as an independent risk factor for mortality, which I think we, we can appreciate from data that's already come out. All right. So that's a, a pretty impressive hazard ratio between troponin and these you know, bad outcomes here. So can we believe it? What are the main limitations? I think you've already identified one. You know, we did start out with a cohort of a thousand patients, and then after exclusion, we were left with 416. So, you know, are there differences amongst those that were excluded that might have changed the results that we're seeing? It's hard to know. This was a single center study, and so it's unclear what the findings might be in a bigger generalized population. We didn't have information on echo or MR features of what the myocardial injury was. What we really just had was the troponin was elevated and that meant bad things. The other thing that's unclear is, you know, is there anything that we might be able to risk stratify those patients with cardiac injury by to sort of predict those that were more likely to die? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, certainly I think of this as one additional data point, but really what we need is a, a multivariable model with many more variables, you know, validated in a, in a separate data set. And, you know, it's important to know that elevated troponin is a marker of, you know, bad outcomes such as mortality, but we need a model that considers all the other variables we've been reading about, such as LDH and CRP and ferritin. But anyway, I guess that's probably enough editorializing from me on this one. Uh, John, uh, what is a take-home point here? I think the take-home here is that an elevated troponin at the time of admission is a marker for mortality. And so you really have to keep a closer eye on these patients. What's left to be determined is what can we do to ease the burden of a 50% mortality rate amongst those with a positive troponin? Yeah, totally. And I think as well, whether or not it's truly 50%, they excluded a lot of people and 
this is focused on a subset of individuals that had not only COVID, but also a troponin. So presumably there was something else about them that made the physician order the troponin, but time will tell. Uh, So John, is this practice changing for you? I think that it is a reasonable thing to consider troponin on some admission guidelines. I know that we're we're talking about order sets for COVID-19 with our patients here in Alberta. So considering troponin as perhaps a marker of disease severity would be reasonable. I agree. I mean, I've ordered a troponin for far less. So, you know, right now at Sinai, our order set has ferritin, LDH, CRP. I'm pretty sure troponin, uh, but I need to double check. And certainly if any of those things are elevated, eh, this is probably not somebody who we should be sending home from the emergency department. Seem reasonable to you? I agree. All right. Well, uh, let's move on and see if we continue to agree. The next study that I'm going to be discussing is entitled Clinical Course and Risk Factors for Mortality of Adult Inpatients with COVID-19. This was published in Lancet in March of 2020. Uh, First author was Zhu et al. So what was the question here? So the goal here was to describe the clinical characteristics of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and to identify which of those characteristics might be associated with uh, inpatient mortality. Okay. And what was the design of the study? Similar to yours, a retrospective multi-center cohort study at two hospitals in Wuhan. Although now I think about it, I think yours was just a single center. Um, All the individuals had lab confirmed COVID-19. They were discharged from hospital between December 29th. 2019 and February 20th. And of course, there you go. So COVID really did exist in China before January. So in order to be included in the study, as noted, people were hospitalized and they had to have either been discharged or have died within the aforementioned time period. The criteria that they used for discharge were interesting and very different than what I'm seeing sort of here in North America. So you couldn't be discharged unless you had three days without fever, substantial improvement in both lungs on CT chest, and remission of all respiratory symptoms and two throat swabs that were negative for COVID-19 at least 24 hours apart. They included very similar variables to what you described in your study. Interestingly, they defined a fever as a temperature greater than 37.3. And similar to your study, they performed a multivariable regression model to identify factors that were associated with in-hospital deaths. Okay. And so who were these patients? What did they look like? 191 in total. 137 were discharged from hospital and 54 died. Of the 191 patients, very similar to your study, 50% had a comorbid condition, hypertension being the most common amongst uh, one-third of patients, Uh, one in five had diabetes, and one in 10 had coronary artery disease. We have some baseline labs, and it's uh, important for people to realize that the initial white blood cell count was typically normal. Hemoglobin, normal. Platelet count, normal. Renal function, normal normal. It is important also to note that lymphopenia was common, as we've seen in other studies. They provide characteristics um, stratified by whether or not individuals survived, and those who survived were more likely to be women. They were typically younger, average age of 52, compared to 69 among those who died. Uh, They were less likely to have a comorbid disease or to have um, smoked cigarettes and a lower laboratory test. Well, a few laboratory tests. And so what were the findings? What were the main results? So I'll note up front some of the treatments they got. Um, 100% got antibiotics, one in five got antivirals, one third got steroids, one quarter got IVIG, and one fifth received mechanical ventilation. The average length of stay among those who survived was 12 days. And among those who died, it was eight days. 
So first they did a univariable analysis. What the heck is that? All a univariable analysis is, is looking at each individual variable of interest and seeing how that is associated with the outcome. So variables that were associated with a worse outcome included older age, pretty much any comorbid condition you can think of, a ferritin greater than 300, and an elevated uh, SOFA or QSOFA score. The next step is to perform a multivariable model, and we would enter a rabbit hole pretty quickly, but just take my word on it as a very rough rule of thumb. For every 10 people who had the bad outcome, you can include one variable in your model. So in this study, they had 50 people who died, so they included five variables in the model. And they noted they predefined them a priori. So the, the ones they looked at were age, coronary artery disease, the SOFA score, and a D-dimer above one. So older age, as well as a D-dimer above one, seem to be the strongest uh, risk factors with odds ratios of anywhere from you know five to higher. And with the high sensitivity troponin, important to mention because your study had it too, it wasn't included in the multivariable model, uh, but in the univariable model it was and was strongly associated with mortality. Okay, interesting. And so, you know, of course, we've talked about some limitations with my study in the context of its, uh, you know, single center design. Uh, what were some of the limitations around this study? Yeah, very similar to yours. You know, these are retro perspective data. And it's important to keep in mind that, you know, an elevated troponin is likely highly associated with the fact somebody has coronary artery disease and also highly associated with the fact that their CRP is very elevated. So again, we don't have a proper multivariable model that includes all of the variables. There's also an important pearl here. Just because an odds ratio or a relative risk has wide confidence intervals that includes the null, that doesn't mean it isn't important. For example, smoking had an odds ratio of two, but wide confidence intervals that included the null. That doesn't mean that smoking isn't harmful. It sure as heck is harmful. And in order to properly model variables and data points, you need to have a distribution in your study. In this study, so few people smoked in general Hence why the confidence intervals were wide and there wasn't that, you know, magical p-value of less than 0.05. Okay. Now, you know, when you're going to be managing patients on the ward, is this going to help change how you're managing, how you're practicing? I think this study and a few others have certainly convinced me that what is important is a ferritin, CRP, LDH, and probably a troponin as well. I don't think that we should be ordering D-dimers routinely, mainly because I just think that will lead to a lot more CTPEs, and that will result in the scanner being down for a while after it gets cleaned and whatnot. So yeah, th those are the main labs. And for anyone who's interested, um, CRP less than five, ferritin less than 300, LDH less than 250, um, those seem to be associated with good outcomes. Okay, very good. So what's your take-home point for this study? Yeah, so I think um, these baseline lab values can be very helpful. I didn't get a chance to go into, you know, some more weeds about the D-dimer, but just be very careful when you're analyzing or reading this study because they included a D-dimer value not only at baseline, but also later in the hospitalization. I think what we want to know and what we need to know are what characteristics up front can help predict 
bad outcomes down the line. So just be cautious when you're reading about the impact of a D-dimer in this study. Okay. Um, so practice changing for you? Um, I think it definitely provides a good clinical picture and yeah, sort of reaffirms the importance of some of the laboratory values to help uh, identify people who are, you know, at high or lower uh, risk of these bad outcomes. Okay, great. Awesome. All right, John. So, you know, we typically talk about the good stuff, the stuff that we're reading about. Uh, so what good stuff uh, has caught your eye recently? I think this has been a phenomenon that we've been seeing across Canada, and it's pretty incredible. Um, it's an article from the CBC, and it's just speaking about a few uh, distilleries and breweries in Calgary that have shifted production and are going to be making hand sanitizer uh, to help deal with supply shortages. It's pretty incredible to see a lot of companies try to adapt and adjust to help out. Yeah, that is a good one for sure. Um, something similar on my end. So IKEA Canada just donated 90,000 N95 masks to uh, North York General. So I am now sort of feverishly trying to get the contact information of whoever runs Canadian Tire or Walmart and see if they can help out some of the other hospitals in Toronto. And then also what was cool, you know, Bauer, good old maker of some fine hockey gear, has shifted production from visors to now face masks for healthcare workers in the hospital, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's really amazing. Yes. Although I've emailed them twice now and no response because I'd really like to get my hands on one. <laughs> but anyway. Well, keep on trying. Yeah, keep on trying. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, John, thanks for taking the time and good to chat. And we'll have to, you know, find time to do another episode in the next week or two. Yeah, sounds good, Mike. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.